don't know about you, I find passages like this in the second half of Acts a little bit hard to engage with sometimes. Um, <clears throat> I think partly that's because I'm not great always at holding the big picture in mind. Um, partly it's because they're often quite bitty. And this passage feels quite bitty to me. We've got a section here which covers a considerable length of time. You might not have got the sense of that reading through it, but it probably covers a year or more, maybe 18 months. And it jumps around quite a lot. It goes between at least six towns, probably more. Just between Lystra and Derby, for example, it's about a 60-mile hike, and Paul had just been stoned nearly to death. So it's unlikely that the apostolic band did that all in one bunch. They, they were probably stopping off at homesteads and smaller settlements along the way, and presumably then preaching the word as they went, because they seemed to do that more or less everywhere. So over a year or 18-month stretch, they visit a whole bunch of different places. They plant at least three churches, but quite possibly more. And yet Luke only records tiny bits of it. We're given a smattering of details of what Paul and his colleagues are getting up to. We see them hounded out of two towns, and we get almost no information about what goes on everywhere else. And yet, when they get home in verse 27, they get to report everything that God has done. And when I first read it stretched like that, I, I find myself thinking, what, what has God done? What, what's going on there? Aren't they just jumping about? So what is Luke showing us in Acts 14? I think verse 27 is the key to it. I think it sums it up nicely. Back in the beginning of chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas had been sent out from Antioch. They'd been sent on this rather vague mission. The work that God had called them to, whatever that meant. And they were set aside for that and sent out. And it's only at the end of chapter 14, when they get home in verse 27, that the church in Antioch can find out what that mission was, what it turned out that these guys were for. It was for God to open a door of faith to the Gentiles. And hopefully that's going to pop up on the screen there. Hooray. Uh, that's what I reckon this passage is about. This is the beginning of large-scale deliberate, thought-through evangelism to the Gentile world. And for us, of course, that's relevant. We are the Gentile world ourselves. It's exciting because of that. But it's probably not as surprising as it should be in the original context. We might know at an intellectual level that Judaism was really exclusive. But we just won't have that same tangle of cultural and religious and emotional reactions that Jews of this time would have had to this issue. We're probably quite familiar with the idea that in the Old Testament, God does explicitly promise that his covenant people are there to bless the whole earth. They're there to draw all nations to him. And because of that familiarity, we're probably not going to grasp just how separate and alien and unclean and therefore unacceptable the Gentile world should have been and would have been to a religious Jew or, or even to a convert to Judaism who would have changed and come under the law. Now the early church really struggled with this issue. We see more of it next week in chapter 15 and it comes up in several of the New Testament letters. This question, where is the heart of God? 
What does he care about? Is it for an insular, separate Jewish nation? How are they meant to be a blessing to the Gentiles? And even is the gospel for the Gentiles at all? So, throughout Acts, Luke's really laying it on thick to establish that this mission and this man, Paul, is part of the core of Christianity. He's not an offshoot. He's not a breakaway heretic. This is the real deal. So a few chapters earlier in chapter 10, we had um, Peter being called in a dream to step outside of Jewish law, to eat ceremonially unclean food. And he was told nothing is impure that God has made clean. Immediately afterwards, he finds himself in Cornelius' house and he witnesses to him and he sees the Holy Spirit poured out even on Gentiles. Luke's saying, look, this is the thrust of God's plan. Peter, the head apostle, he recognises it. And now as the focus of Acts shifts on to Paul, Luke again deliberately uses chapters 13 and 14 to establish this teaching and this mission is carried out with God's approval, God's authority. So he does that by drawing a bunch of parallels between Paul and Jesus to demonstrate his authority in just the same way that he had for Peter earlier in Acts. So um, when we first start reading about Jesus in Luke, Luke tells us how he confronted Satan at the beginning of his ministry in Luke 4. And last week in Acts 13, we had Paul confronting Bar-Jesus, who he calls a child of the devil. The next thing Luke records Jesus doing is preaching in a synagogue in Luke 4, being rejected, escaping death by stoning, and therefore taking his teaching elsewhere. And so in Acts 13 and 14, we have some Jews rejecting Paul's teaching in synagogues, driving him out, failing to kill him by stoning, and therefore pushing his teaching elsewhere to the Gentiles. In Luke 4 and 5, Jesus goes on to heal many, and particularly a paralysed man right in front of the Jewish teachers of the law. You might remember back in Acts 3, Luke records Peter doing pretty much exactly the same thing. And then here in 14 verse 9, he establishes Paul's gospel credentials. He uses almost exactly the same wording to have Paul looking directly at and then healing a lame man, this time in front of a Gentile priesthood. Luke's using this stuff to say, look, this mission, this is from God. It's empowered and it's accredited by God. Paul has genuine apostolic authority. In 14 verse 3, he says it outright. The Lord confirms this message with signs and wonders. And so Luke wants his audience and he wants us to see that Paul and the mission that God has given him are the direction that God's people are being sent down. They were established first in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and now they're being sent outwards to the ends of the earth. And that's what chapter 14 begins. We have God opening the door of faith to the outside Gentile world. The question on Luke's mind, where is God's message directed? Is he looking to build a new Israelite nation or by extension now, a nice insular church where it's comfy to be a believer? What does God have a heart for? What's he longing to do? Where does he direct his miracles and his power and his spirit out into the world. He opens a door of faith to the Gentiles 
And that's the rest of the book of Acts and the rest of the Bible and the rest of history, really. So I probably ought to stop and count that as a challenge to us. God blesses his church mightily. He gives us fellowship and friendship and love. He gives us mutual interdependence and service to each other, which blesses both sides. He lets us support and care for and build each other up. We've seen loads of that at Morden Road. It can be a struggle at times, yes, but it, it pays off with great joy. It's lovely. And then once it's paid off, isn't it so easy just to start looking inwards and enjoy a comfy church, a circle of sorted, clean, saved people, and to find ourselves with almost no tangible interaction with the outside, the Gentile world around us. And that is just not what God built his church for. His message is meant to go out. His work is to open doors of faith to outsiders. And all of us, even shy, awkward physicists, introverts like me, we've got our roles in that. So it's worth pausing and challenging ourselves. Do we regularly ask ourselves how we're involved in that mission? And how much do we care about it? Am I leading my friends into contact with Christ? And does it honestly grieve my heart that they don't know him? A lot of the time, no. Am I worried when church growth comes from established Christians joining and, and not from new seekers and new believers in baptism? Does that scare me? It should, it should be part of our spiritual MOT, the regular set of questions we ask, shouldn't it? How do we take part in opportunities to witness to this message of God's grace? So, do I need to be getting involved in structured evangelism in church? Things like real life or, or sunflowers or whatever else is going on. Do I need to be doing that? Do I need to be setting aside time outside of church to deliberately try and see and speak with non-Christian friends and colleagues so I actually have the, the chance, the space to witness to them and share my life on more than just the work level? Do I invest in that? I don't speak from a position of strength. I tend very much to focus my energies inwards on a, a comfy, holy huddle. But reading Acts 14, I don't think I can even pretend that I'm sharing my God's main focus when I do that. No, God opens a door of faith to the Gentiles. And we're meant to share in that mission. So, looking in more detail then into chapter 14, how has he done it? How has he opened this door of faith. At first glance, this chapter reads a bit like city hopping, almost a gap year. Paul and Barnabas are just backpacking around the place, preaching the word. But actually, they are spending a good chunk of time in each city. By the time they move on, they're leaving posses of believers behind them. Enough so that on the return leg, in verses 21 to 23, there are fledgling churches that they can visit and encourage in each place. How does that happen? How does God plant these churches? How does he open 
this door. Two thoughts for you for the remainder of the sermon. Uh, the first is staggeringly obvious. It's that he takes his gospel to them. Um, I'm sure here a more gifted evangelist than me would draw quite a lot more out. Uh, but just look at how the guest gospel gets shared in Iconium and Lystra and Derby. It's not the cold, rational, strategic choice to go there. Now, often that is how evangelism works, but not always, and not here. In chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas ended up speaking to Gentiles in Pisidian Antioch because the Jews wouldn't listen. And then they got driven out of that region. So, in chapter 14, they rock up at Iconium almost by accident. And then that's repeated. They're driven out to Lystra and driven out again to Derby. So this isn't Paul, the strategic evangelist, aiming at a cultural hub like Rome. That does happen. But in this case, this is God using opposition and beatings and pushing them before him into apparently insignificant places that they probably weren't banking on going to. They're off the beaten track. As far as we know, these areas, Lystra and Derby, were sort of cultural backwaters. Populations mostly be illiterate pagans with these funny cults to Zeus and Hermes that cause this misunderstanding. But God takes his gospel where he wants it. And interestingly, it's from this church in Lystra that later Timothy gets raised up to serve God mightily. And God takes his gospel to them. He does it geographically, but also intellectually. Look at um, verses 1 to 3. These guys don't just proclaim the word and then move on. Verse 3, we see that when they've got a receptive audience, they invest a considerable amount of time in communicating the gospel message. They only actually move on when they're forced to. They don't get to spend as much time as they would like with the new believers. It normally takes time for people to respond to the gospel to hear and understand and consider change. And so I guess for us there's a challenge there in our evangelism, isn't there? It's easy to think that it's all about one chat. You know, I failed it because I haven't had that one chat, I didn't take that one opportunity. But one chat isn't going to do it. It might take years of friendship and diligent prayer before people begin to be one round. And did you notice how flexible they are in their preaching? Narconian, verses 1 to 3, he teaches as usual in the synagogue. So he's probably taking a similar approach to in chapter 13, making clear how Jesus was foreshadowed throughout the Old Testament, explaining the gospel in depth and detail, speaking boldly, dealing with objections and counter-arguments. And then in Lystra, He's got a completely different audience. They'll know almost nothing of Judaism. But there isn't some intellectual bar, some level of knowledge that you have to leap over before we're ready for the gospel. Instead, verses 15 to 17, he couches it in terms that he knows people will be able to deal with. Turn away from the worthless things to the living God who's patient with you. I guess that's increasingly a challenge for us in our evangelism. Now, partly it's because our society is more multicultural than maybe it used to be. Partly there's a wider spread of assumptions than there used to be. But also, 
general awareness of the Christian message is far lower than it once was. I'm a teacher. I deal with teenagers. I'm frequently surprised and horrified, even in my physics lessons, uh, by how little my students know of, not just physics, that too, but of Christianity. And even of basic Bible stories, which I thought, you know, every kid knows. I think they've got less knowledge than, than my peers had when I was their age. We're going to have to make sure that we're thinking how we make those connections. How we bridge past people's assumptions or, or lack of knowledge about what's going on in the gospel. I often don't think I'm clever enough to do that. Encouragingly then, it is God who takes his gospel to them. In verse 27, despite all their gifts, Paul and Barnabas are giving all of the credit to God. In verse 3, it's the Lord Jesus who by his power accredits the message of his grace. Sure, when I speak with my friends, I don't see miraculous healings and wonders. Maybe I don't have much faith. Maybe we live in a different age and the spirit acts differently. Maybe we just live in a different culture where those signs aren't the accepted currency of authentic religion. But you don't have to look far in Christian lives to see the spirit at work. You see changed hearts and believers who are freed up from slavery to money, to the world's standards, or to sins that previously entangled them. And that's the impressive thing to people. He testifies to his gospel. It's the Lord and his spirit who do the work, and he change up hearts. Paul and Barnabas, the evangelists here, they, they just have to turn up and talk, and admittedly faithfully trust God and carry on despite horrific opposition, but it's God doing the work. In verse 11, when the Lystrians imagine that Paul and Barnabas are remarkable in themselves, they're they're just horrified. They're held up, I think, in contrast to Herod, a chapter earlier, who accepted praise like this and died. No, that they can't be quick enough to give all credit to the Lord and point to him. They know that every miracle, every convert, is by his power alone. So I bet you, I bet you they prayed like troopers and asked him to be at work, and depended on him. And do I do that before and after I chat with my friends? Or at some level do I imagine it's my good character that's going to win them round, that's going to do the miracle? Not if they know me well, it's not. No, it's the Lord who opens the doorway to the Gentiles. He takes his gospel to them. And then secondly, He establishes his church in verses 21 to 23, which hopefully will turn up on the screen. Come on. Good. Acts sometimes reads like Paul just hopping from place to place, being an evangelist, and snap conversions left, right, and center. But actually, he revisits churches whenever he can, and when he can't, he writes to them. And in the final bit of this chapter, he goes back through each of these cities. And even again in chapter 16, he goes out through them again, revisiting. And when they do that, look what God uses these apostles to do. 
Look at how he keeps that door of faith propped open. First, in verse 22, they strengthen the disciples and encourage them to remain true to the faith. They say, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. I guess it's, it's no surprise to hear someone preaching in an evangelical church and say that teaching was clearly central to God's provision for them. But, but it, it was. And particularly, the encouragement and the warning that they would need to bear up under hardships. Now, Paul could speak with some authority on this. They knew he'd been hounded from city to city. They knew he'd been stoned almost to death. And the next day, had got up to go on and proclaim God's glory joyfully in another city. They needed to hear that. They had to have a clear understanding of the Bible and of what it would mean to be an imitator of Christ. It would mean to share in his sufferings because just like them, him, they would face in inevitable persecution. And we need that just as much, don't we? We've got to feed on this word. We have to be encouraged and to be taught because we will face challenges. And if I don't have a clear grasp of Christ's model for me, it's going to be pretty hard for me to respond faithfully in the face of hardship. It's one of the many reasons why we we encourage ourselves to make church a priority. Make sure that week after week we're sitting under good teaching. We need those constant reminders and encouragements to prepare us for the devil's counterattacks. Luke has already carefully shown us that those come again and again whenever Christ is at work. But the devil's not sovereign. God is. The devil doesn't succeed in his purposes. God does. In fact, here in Acts 14, the devil's counterattacks are what God uses to drive the gospel into new territory. Christians are going to need to follow Paul's model and Christ's model, stand faithfully through those attacks, and so the apostles are careful to see that they get well taught. Second thing they do, in verse 23, they appoint elders. Uh, We don't know the method. We don't know how many lay elders, how many full-time paid workers there were. We do know the kinds of criteria they had. Paul sets those out in Timothy and Titus. But it's just clear that the churches needed figures of authority. People to take responsibility for the teaching and the pastoral oversight. I think that could be a tough pill for us today. We guard our independence carefully. But honestly, there is no model in the New Testament for a lone ranger, independent believer. We need to be part of a larger body. Sometimes that's so that there are people out there who have the the duty, the responsibility to know us and care for us when we're struggling. Or to have the duty to challenge us lovingly when we go off the rails. And also, because if we're not part of a larger body, we can't do that for other people or encourage other people and serve other Christians as Christ commands. It's no use being on the fringe. We need to be part of a church and we need to accept pastorship over us. It's a key part of God's provision for his people. 
to belong to a church, to accept wise counsel and teaching. And when we try to go it alone, we make ourselves easy meat for the enemy. Even Paul does the same. He's not travelling around solo. He's always travelling in a band of people. And then when he gets home in verse 28, and again in chapter 15, he settles and puts down roots in his local fellowship. Now God establishes his church. He puts elders over us, shepherds to pastor and care for us. And then the third thing that we see in verse 23 is Paul and Barnabas committing them with prayer and fasting to the Lord. I'm I'm told the grammar there applies it to the whole church, not just the leadership. Actually, it's more than that. He commits them to the Lord in whom they've put their trust. And thankfully, just like evangelism, ultimately comes down to God's power. So do the functioning and survival of these churches. They depend utterly on the trustworthiness of their God. And they had to realise that. Nothing else would get them through. And the Lord is faithful. He blesses them and grows them. And they're still there years later when Paul comes back in Acts 16. The Lord is faithful. So every Jew or Gentile that was appointed for eternal life in these cities believed and not one would be plucked from his hand. And we can depend on that trustworthy God with equal confidence. So brothers and sisters, if you're a follower of Christ, he has paid in full for your sins. You have absolute security before the living God. Keep turning to him from the worthless idols of this world. He's completely faithful and he will carry the work he's begun in you to completion. In Acts 13 and 14, God opens a door of faith to the Gentiles. So if you're a believer here today, we're we're just some of the latest beneficiaries of that. He established his churches to keep that door propped open, to prevent his people from falling away, to prevent them from being mauled by the devil. So let's be committed to teaching and pastoring each other. Let's humbly submit within church to gospel leadership. He sends his gospel out to the Gentiles to invite them in. He loves them and longs for his lost sheep. So again, let's make sure we share his heart in that. Let's join that mission. Let's be committed in long-term prayer and loving evangelism and friendship to those around us. And let's take heart in all things, in growing Christians and churches' maturity and in driving his gospel home. It's Christ that is sovereign. And it's entirely and only by his power that his purposes are achieved, not by mine.